You've turned on Sexy Marriage Radio, where the best sex is happening in the marriage bed. Here are your hosts, Dr. Corey Allen and Shannon Etheridge. So, hey, Shannon, I got a question for you. Hey, Corey, I hope I have an answer for you. Um, is it actually spring in Tyler? <laughs> it is now. I was so excited to come back down from up north after a couple weeks to actual spring weather. Yeah, I mean, I'm so happy. Yeah, you got to love spring because, you know, things are blooming, things are growing, you know, new life is forming. And my hope would be that if you're new to Sexy Marriage Radio, maybe something blooms in your bedroom that hasn't before. <laughs> How's that? There you go. I like it. Um, I always think of spring as being a very happy time. I'm, yes. I always come alive when the dogwoods and the azaleas bloom and all that kind of stuff. I saw something funny the other day, though, that you can't say the word happiness without saying penis because happiness, <laughs> that's just all part of it. <laughs> well, I, I, I would say <laughs> I, I would say half our audience being the male species would be pleased with that. <laughs> as long as they're talking about his penis absolutely somebody absolutely <laughs> well this is sexy yeah, marriage some, radio some women may or may not agree uh, that's yeah some some women for sure are like yeah no i'm not saying that i'm not going there but hey we go there we talk about that uh, we do indeed and and i want to welcome you to sexy marriage radio um thank you for taking some time out of your day to spend it with us uh we are honored every time we get invited into your world and then we also are honored every time we hear from our listeners because we have the absolute sexiest listeners on the face of the planet. And so you can, you can let us know what questions you may have, what thoughts you may have at feedback at sexymarriageradio.com. Every email that comes in is for sure read, and some are replied to, and some are future shows. So we love hearing from our listeners because that helps us set the stage for wherever we may go down the road. And you know what I especially love hearing is how many people claim to be binge listeners exactly. now that they have stumbled upon us. Yeah, we, love, love, love hearing one that. One came through right before we started recording today that is that said that oh, yeah? very thing. I just found you and I've been binge listening ever since. And hey, welcome. Love being their new best friend. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I, I think it's only appropriate because I have just met Richard when we met for dinner, you know, a couple of weeks back. And, mm -hmm. and you were here for mm -hmm. a conference with him or at his conference or training. And so I'm thinking it's best you bring him into the show today. I would love to introduce Richard Blankenship today. Uh, I would I could go on and on and on about his credentials, but I really want to introduce him as a dear friend and brother because that's exactly what he's become. Uh, Richard and I met several years ago when he was hosting um, an International Association of Sex Addiction Specialists conference. Did I, I'm sure I butchered that acronym, Richard. You can correct me here in a moment, but we <laughs> met at a conference he was hosting in Nashville where he invited me to come and speak. And then um, I signed up for a four-day seminar that he was teaching most recently in Dallas. And Corey, thank you and your wife so much for having dinner with us that night because I really wanted you to hear some of the amazing insights that Richard has. And so Richard, thanks so much for being willing to be on the show with us today, actually for a two-part series. So thanks twice. Yes. Well, thanks for having me. I've been excited about this. Well, Richard, one of the specialties that you have stumbled upon uh, with your counseling practice, probably out of sheer need, because I'm 
after a lot of couples find themselves in this situation is working with couples where one has become addicted to some sort of sexual practice that is not sitting well with the spouse. How is it that you wound up specializing in this particular area? Well, in many ways, the specialty found me many years ago. I had worked uh, at a church-based counseling center and the problem just kept walking in the door. <laughs> and the, I, began, I went and got trained in how to deal with that and had no idea at the time it would become a specialty area. And it's just a very rewarding field because the people who really get in there and take this journey, they get well. And the intimacy development that we see with couples in recovery and it's hard work, but they make it and they often end up with marriages that are to be envied. I'm going to make sure that everybody heard that. You said to be envied? Yes. yes. Uh, in fact, one of the things when I used to supervise young therapists, when they would work with these couples, I had a few situations where the therapists were getting envious of the client marriages. <laughs> um, and I think what wow. happens is the average the average married couple in America will never reach the level of intimacy that a couple in recovery reaches just simply by the process, mm -hmm. going through the trauma, the wounds, the level of disclosure, the level of honesty, all of those things that go into fantastic intimacy development. And while I, I certainly do not recommend a sex addiction as a way to a better marriage, <laughs> uh, I think it's a it's definitely a, a sign that you know, your pain won't be wasted in recovery and it can be redeemed. That's but awesome. Historically, we've always thought about a spouse acting out as a surefire pathway to divorce. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is that if a couple really digs deep and enters the recovery process fully, it doesn't necessarily mean a divorce. That's correct. In fact, the research shows that most of the couples stay together. The biggest fear, of course, of an addict is that when he becomes he or she becomes honest, that their partner is going to leave them. Mm -hmm. And the research just simply indicates that's not true. That's great. Wow. OK, so we're going to dive deep here and we're going to start with uh, let's start with the spouse who's been cheated on. Um, what what are the immediate repercussions in that person's mind because I'm sure that the spouse who's been acting out I mean they've known it since day one but to the spouse who's just discovering it it's like a tidal wave of information slamming them into a wall suffocating them where do they even begin sifting and sorting and separating their emotions and handling this well the metaphors you just used are right on it is a tsunami and it is suffocating and those are the very kind of metaphors that we hear from partners of sex addicts or partners of people who have betrayed them. And we now know from Dr. Barbara Steffen's research that 70% of the time when a partner discovers the infidelity, they develop all but one symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I mean, so that's the level of trauma we're talking mm -hmm. about. I mean, this is what the Vietnam veterans had when they came back. Right. Nightmares. So, so what are some of the... There you go. What is it? Nightmares and what else? Nightmares, intrusive thoughts, flashbacks, uh, reliving things, physical symptoms uh, that they might have. Um, so psychosomatic reactions. Psychosomatic reactions um, can, can be extremely difficult and uh, they often feel paralyzed. Uh, a lot of the spouses use um, you know, a lot of imagery uh, that rape trauma survivors use. And, you know, so that's, that's a part of what they're experiencing. Wow. wow. So, so I, I want to back up just real quick, Shannon. Um, yeah. 
just just to kind of get the audience up to speed, give me a Richard from you. I'd love to hear the idea of just a sex addict. What what does that? How do, how do you get that? Not, not label in a sense, but how do you how do you get what what makes that up so to where it's now it's it's really causing havoc in life and in relationship. Just so we can kind of have a level playing field. Okay, the key word I use is unmanageable. Okay. When the behavior is out of control, when it's disrupting your work, your relationships, your home life, um, it's disrupting you spiritually, you know, it's affecting you physically, those types of things, when it's unmanageable. Okay. Uh, addic sex addiction is really not the best term. It's just a term we've kind of been stuck with. Right. Um, because this would all be better referred to as an intimacy disorder because that's ultimately what it's about. And yeah, you know, some of the terms that are catching on now are hypersexuality or problematic sexual behavior. But mm -hmm. yeah, most of us still, I think, out of force, I have a default to the term sex addiction. Right. I love what you said in your seminar that it really doesn't matter what label you put on it because I'm sure that a person who's been acting out does not want to claim the label addict. <laughs> they don't want to associate themselves with a label that dark. That's right, they don't, and especially the female addicts, they really hate the label that's that dark. Uh, and so it's it's very difficult. I don't fight with people over a label. They can call it whatever they want to call it. I just want them to deal with the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so you said that um, you've actually had counselors who are jealous of the intimacy that gets cultivated in a couple's relationship when they really start going deep. That speaks to your expertise as a counselor that you're able to take a couple that deep. What are some of the first steps that you recommend the spouse take in regaining some equilibrium and, and just um, not collapsing under the weight of this tsunami? Yeah, and it's important to note, too, that when it comes to those marriages that uh, become so great that that's late-stage recovery. That is not something that happens quick. When that partner stops off, starts off finding out what's happened to them, yeah, it's major crisis. Their whole world is upside down. And you know, for them to reclaim any kind of safety or stability, uh, they're going through an intense grieving process. And so they need a lot of help establishing boundaries, uh, just getting themselves into a safe place so that they can begin to heal. And one of the toughest parts of this for a partner is that the relationship that they're trying to heal in is the very relationship that hurt them. Right. And in talk many, about sleeping with the enemy. Sleeping with the enemy, exactly. Uh, when you think about you know, the comparisons to rape trauma, well, if the rape was committed by a stranger, you know, the person is healing, but they're not having to heal right alongside the rapist. Well, in relationship, uh, they're trying to heal along with the very person that hurt them. And it's really a weird, ironic dynamic that the relationship in which they were devastated and traumatized can also be the relationship in which they heal. Yeah. And I, I loved because when, when we met the way you the way you delineated it, I loved was, you know, it's it's creating a new relationship because if it's if you're dealing with somebody that has a drug ad addiction or an alcohol addiction, it's easy to live without those or easy is the wrong word. You can yeah. live without yeah. those. But but we're talking about a relationship. It's measurable. Right. But yeah. you're talking about a relationship that you don't necessarily maybe want to live without. So you have to 
heal in the midst of it. And I, that's a, that's a tremendously different path. Yes, it is. And that's what does make this particular addiction more problematic. Yeah. If you want to give up drugs and alcohol, you can put those things down and you never have to touch them again. But God's created us as sexual beings and right. our right. bodies are designed to respond sexually. And this is one that isn't going to go away. And one of the, one of the toughest parts early on in the journey, you know, when, when a spouse is traumatized by betrayal, they don't even want to think about sex in many cases. Mm -hmm. um, some go to the other extreme and become hypersexual, but most of the time they tend to shut down in that way. And the thought of sexual reintegration someday uh, is, you know, when they're in crisis, that's just not even on the radar. Right. And Richard, that leads me to, you know, the big burning question in my mind. I know that, I, well, first of all, I want to acknowledge that it's not always the man acting out and the woman being cheated upon. Right. Sometimes it is the reverse. Right. Uh, more often now than ever before, it's the woman acting out and it's the man scratching his head going, how did this even happen? Hmm. But whether it's the man or the woman, I know that one of the first questions that enters into the spouse's mind is, should I withhold sex? Or should I give them sex? Because it seems as if that, that's a damned if you do and damned if you don't question. Yeah, that is one of the things they'll struggle with. And it's not necessarily that the partners want to be sexual in the heat of the moment or the crisis. It's more that they fear that if they aren't being sexual, that their, their partner is going to act out in some way. Kind of if he isn't getting it from me, where's he going to go get it? Mm -hmm. And so it's not that they're really fully present. It's more that they're trying to control. It's, it's part of their search for safety and stability, Yeah, where they will do things they don't want to do just to feel safe. Okay. And so is that healthy or is that based on the person? Is, is that going to be different from person to person? I find it does vary from person to person. More often than not, though, at the early stage when they're in crisis, spouses don't want to be sexual. And we always look at the dynamics, you know, are they saying that they want to be sexual because they're being coerced or because the addict is manipulating them or saying, you know, if you don't have sex with me, I'll be tempted to go get it somewhere else. And so, yeah, looking at all of the manipulative dynamics is, is an important part of the journey. So you think that it definitely needs to be something they are internally motivated to do, not externally motivated alone. Yeah. And when you're in that early stage of crisis, you know, they are, yeah, at that point, most people aren't really sure what they want to do. Mm -hmm. and right. so they do need to be you know, developing more of an internal motivation. It's just that when you're in the heat of a crisis, most of us don't really know what we want. And right. the partners are so devastated. I mean, when they're struggling to breathe and just to get through the day, uh, to really know what they want sexually is not the top thing on their mind. Right. And I would think that there's some medical consequences that they need to pause and consider before having sex with a spouse who you just learned is acting out. Exactly. Obviously, STDs really don't understand that, oh, but this is my spouse. The STDs aren't supposed to happen within the marriage. <laughs> he could have or she could have easily brought something home. That's correct. And we do tell partners all the time, don't be sexual with him until he has had an STD test. You know, make sure you're safe. And that's one of the most traumatic, humiliating things that a partner ever undergoes is that trip 
some of them are scared to death to go to their OBGYN for that test. And they'll go to, you know, a place that will, you know, they'll drive 100 miles from home and go to a private lab or something uh, because it's a humiliating experience mm -hmm. to them to have to go ask for that test when they're not the one who did this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would imagine there's a lot of anger that comes along with that as well. Oh, yes. And my recommendation is always don't think about how hard this is to to do to get the test. Think of how hard it would be to live not knowing whether there's a disease present or not. You want to know. Yeah. Yeah. It's and one so of those you're recommending knowledge is power. Yep. Yes. So you're recommending that both spouses be tested, not just the one who's been cheating. Right. And the reality of it is addicts we know are professional liars. And so they may even claim they haven't physically acted out or that they couldn't have an STD, uh, especially early on. You know, we still encourage partners to get tested. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talk about the, talk about the tip of the iceberg model. I remember that slide that you showed us that usually spouses are told about this much, about an inch of the top of the tip of the iceberg, and there's so much more underneath the surface. That's true. Uh, yeah. And, and especially when you're talking early on in the journey for a partner, yeah, they know typically what they have discovered and they know what the addict may have admitted to at that point. But until there's been a really full disclosure, and that's a very delicate therapeutic process that takes some takes some time. Yeah, they only they may only know the tip of the iceberg. And of course, that's what makes it hard for the partner because then their imagination is going to be far worse than reality. They're going to mm -hmm. imagine all kinds of things mm -hmm. that may have never happened, but that's part of the trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what kind of warnings do you have against asking too many questions? Because I would think that in a moment of crisis, when he or she is learning certain things, that the knee-jerk reaction is, tell me everything. I want to know who, when, where, what, et cetera, et cetera. And this is probably way more information than a healing spouse ever, is ever going to need to know. Am I right? Yes. And that's the importance of a therapeutic disclosure led by a therapist who is trained in this kind of work. Otherwise, partners you know, will tend to want to know all kinds of details. What positions were you in? You know, what was her breast size? What did she look like? And typically spouses in those moments when they're asking lots of questions, they have this mental measuring stick that's coming out that's saying, how do I compare? Mm -hmm. How do I measure up? I mean, I had one lady I worked with years ago where she went as far as to masquerade as a prostitute and got hired at a massage parlor. And the reason she said she did it was she wanted to catch her husband. But the real reason she did it at the end of the day, she said, was I wanted to find out what those women had that I didn't. Now, fortunately, what happened was the first day she went to work, she got terrified at the front door and ran. Um, which was a good thing for her. Mm -hmm. But I think it showed the great links partners go to when they think it's about them and how desperate they feel to make sense of it. They're searching for safety and their world's been turned upside down and they're just trying to make sense of something that makes no logical sense. So let right. me ask, let me ask you this, Richard, if, do you take the stance then of for the spouse that has been betrayed, that it's not about them? How do, how do you how do you navigate that water? Well, you navigate it on a couple of different levels. Intellectually, 
the partner will get it eventually mm-hmm. emotionally in the crisis. They are not going to get that. Right. It's still going to penetrate so deeply and it's just, it's very wounding. Um, part of what we remind them of is when we trace the addict's history and we go back to where it started, which is typically their first exposure to pornography somewhere between age five and 11. Yeah. You know, the addiction has been there longer than they've ever known the spouse. Mm-hmm. And the seeds of it were planted so early, it it can't be about the spouse because he had it long before he ever met her. Mm -hmm. Now, intellectually, they will get that someday, but they're not going to get that real early on. Right. Yeah. The hurt is too great. Yeah. And there's just, there is no trauma like betrayal trauma. Uh, And it just, it wounds you so deeply. It just cuts you right to the core. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to speak to the men who are in the spouse's position and feeling as if, well, you know, how did I not measure up and what was I not doing for her? I just distinctly remember when I was experiencing so much temptation in those early years of my marriage and Greg's wisdom and insight when he said, I know that this is not about me and you. This is about you and your dad. And I'm so thankful that he had that understanding because I didn't even understand that. And I was in denial of that until I actually met with a counselor and started looking at my childhood and recognizing that, yeah, these are father wounds that I'm trying to act out and medicate. Uh, so to any spouse out there, I want to make sure that you're hearing that loud and clear that most likely it's not about you at all. You just right. happen to marry someone who has some unresolved trauma and issues from the, their childhood that they never learned to unpack. But this could be the prime season uh, in order to do that. In fact, I had a woman attend one of my women at the well workshops recently. She married, a, had been married to a guy for 26 years and he acted out uh, with another man and he actually contracted HIV. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, she, it had not been transmitted to her, but she came saying, I want to, or the doctor had given her antiviral drugs so that it wouldn't be transmitted. But she said, I want to continue being married to this man and I want to continue having sex with this man. But this was three years after uh, she learned this. You know, at first, yeah. that was not her stance. But you know, mm-hmm. three years later, I just so admired her determination to make this work. And when she explained to the group, you know, the group was like, how in the world is that possible? And she said, look, when I look at his childhood and the sexual abuse that he experienced as early as eight, nine and 10 years old. And then I look at my own childhood and she had similar abuse take place. She said, my heart just bleeds for this man and I want to help him heal. And she had been a huge source of his healing. I think that they're probably one of the couples that would fall into that category, Richard, of their intimacy is deeper and richer than anything they've ever fathomed they could possibly have before. Yeah. And the key thing you just shared, Shannon, is that that was three years in. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it was a journey. It was a journey. And addicts tend to have want instant gratification. They want it now. They want the partner to just get over it. And I had one recently who was in that situation who was demanding that his spouse be completely over her anger and her trauma within three months. Good luck and with that. Yes, never going to happen. Uh, not if he wants his wife to be real. <laughs> uh, and so you, the key there is that was a three-year journey. And you know, getting people to grasp that it is a journey and not just an event mm-hmm. is a key part of the healing. Well, I would also think that you're learning that the person that you thought you were married to isn't the person you thought you were married to and that you have to basically start over from scratch, getting to know who this person really is, but only to the extent that they're willing to be vulnerable and honest and real 
about who they really are and what they've been experiencing. Exactly. It is creating a new relationship because most partners did not know. Uh, there's, you know, some, uh, what we sometimes call treatment induced trauma is when therapists start to blame the partner and make him or her responsible for things. And they will basically say, well, it's obvious you knew it all along. You were just in denial or something. And it simply isn't true. Most of the partners yeah, they may have known something was wrong, but they didn't know what, and they had no idea the magnitude of it. Right. And so address that codependency model, because I'm sure that there are some people listening who have already been down this road with a counselor who were told, well, it's it, you're the codependent spouse. You've equipped and enabled him or her to, to act this way. Would you please debunk that myth? Yeah, I'm glad you put it that way, because that's what it is. It's a myth. Uh, and sadly, most sex addiction therapists these days are still operating under that model. And so when partners come into them for help, they're being re-traumatized or maybe they go to a pastor and they get blamed or they're made to be responsible for fixing the addict's problem. And they're told crazy things like if you don't have sex with him every three days, he might explode. There's actually a well-known writer who put that in a book and it's blaming the partner. It's mm -hmm. making them responsible for fixing the addict. What we find is most partners are not codependent. Uh, the codependency I find is really in the addict. There's a lot more codependency there. Uh, and what are often labeled codependent reactions in the partner are really trauma symptoms. You know, partners don't want to spend the rest of their lives spying uh, doing search and seizure and things like that. Nobody wants to live that way. Mm -hmm. They're doing that because they've been traumatized. Uh, and, you know, SNN and uh, traditional treatment models are continuing to tell partners that they have their own disease. Uh, I remember the first time I ever worked at a spouse's workshop, the leader got up at the thing and said, ladies, I'm going to break it to you now. You're all sicker than your husbands. Well, that is a <laughs> wow. sick horrible traumatic uh, thing to say and this is the stuff that continues to come out of the mouths of our national leaders in the field mm -hmm. um, and so yeah it is a myth and i have in the last three years i went through and looked at all of the partners i've worked with hundreds of them and i found two who were genuinely codependent and both of them were adult children of alcoholics so it kind of made sense wow so there's a lot of negative labeling that's done to the partner, uh, a lot of blaming, and it really does nothing but re-traumatize the partners. No wonder they don't want to go to group or that they don't want to go to therapy if they're going to be abused that way. Right. Sure, sure. Well, and how does a couple it. heal when both of them now are dealing with all these labels and issues and concerns? And you what have an addict who's in essence being told this is the way you're supposed to treat your wife, which... Ooh makes the marriage a more traumatic place. Right. Yeah. yeah. And again, I'm, I'm trying to flip it around to, but what if it's the woman acting out? <laughs> and I recall at, at a recent workshop where the woman, I mean, she wanted to blame her husband about all the things that he did or didn't do. But yet when I asked her, you know, was he like that prior to marriage? Well, he was. And, and so trying to get her to focus on her own issues rather than projecting that on her spouse, is so important, I think, in the yes. in the addict's recovery, because as long as you're deflecting to your spouse or your parents or whoever, you're not owning responsibility. 
I would think that that is, I was about to ask you, what are the needs that the spouse has from the one who's been acting out? But I would think that that's probably the number one thing that they need is they need an acknowledgement that they're willing to take responsibility for what they've done. They're not trying to scapegoat somebody else. Am I right? Absolutely. One of the key things that an addict needs, and they have to be taught this in most cases, is empathy to understand and really grasp the impact of the betrayal on the trauma, the impact of the lying. Most partners actually can deal with the sexual stuff uh, after a period of time. The lying and the deceit Mm -hmm. is the underlying part that is incredibly traumatizing. And when the addict gets to where they own their stuff and they can sit where the partner sits, they've got to be able to feel what the partner is feeling. Otherwise, you know, they're likely to continue acting out. And it's about the relational recovery. It's not just about the addict not acting out anymore, but it's healing the relational wounds. It's healing the way they've emotionally and sexually and spiritually traumatized their partner. And that's going to take empathy. It's going to take time. It's going to take the addict doing everything he or she can to create as much safety as possible. And yes, that means they're going to have to take the spouse's anger for a while. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that's that's something I think um, that's a great. I, I know you're doing another show with us, and that's where we're heading next. Is is let's talk about the addict. Let's talk about the other side of this. But to kind of wrap this one up, Richard, I'd love to hear what's the to directly to the spouse, the the betrayed spouse. What what word of encouragement? What kind of what's a good takeaway they could have when they're just hit with this tsunami and it's like I have no idea what's going on, who I am, what I'm supposed to do, you know? And it's just help help give them at least a direction going forward. And I realize you can't do that in a minute, but I need you to do it in a minute. <laughs> or so the first thing i would say to a male or female partner is you are not crazy good Uh, you are not crazy i cannot tell you how many times people come in questioning their own reality Mm -hmm. they literally don't know at times if they put one foot on the floor the floor is going to fall out from under them Um, you're searching for safety you're worth it your wounds deserve time to heal And it's important that you get to someone who does understand trauma, someone who's not going to label you as codependent or, you know, tell you you're, you have your own disease or stuff like that, but someone who is going to recognize the depth of betrayal trauma Mm -hmm. and just how deeply it, it wounds. I mean, if you're the quarterback of a football team, you expect the defense to come across the line and tackle you. But if the offensive line that's supposed to be protecting you turns and tackles you, well, it may be the same tackle, but it's going to take you 10 times as long to get up. Mm -hmm. Because the people who are supposed to have have betrayed you Mm -hmm. and your betrayal is worse than something that's coming from the outside because it's coming from the person you were supposed to be safe with. So you're not crazy. Find a good trauma specialist and your wounds can heal. Good. That's a great word. And Richard, how can they find you if they're interested in connecting directly with you or one of the counselors that you've trained? Uh, you can, for me, go to capstoneatlanta.com 
and all of my contact information is there. I also would refer to the two boards that I'm on, the International Association of Certified Sex Addiction Specialists, and most of our therapists there have been trained in the trauma model. I also want to refer to the Association for Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists that I also work with. And we are training specific partner specialists all over the country and even outside the country who understand the trauma model and can work with a partner from this perspective. It's so important that you're changing the culture of counseling, Richard. Thank you for yes. being a pioneer in that regard. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And thanks for joining us today. We look forward to our next show with you. Right. Thanks. Absolutely. So, man, Shannon, um, we, we've been accused of going uh, straightforward with things, and I think that this, this show completely aligns with that accusation. Hopefully we're living up to our, <laughs> our, our reputation. <laughs> well, thank you for taking some time out with us. And if you've got some questions or anything you, you want answered, let us know. Feedback at SexyMarriageRadio.com. We'll see you next time.